and I, I think we should probably think about meat production in the same way we should think about it really saying yeah we're producing very sort of nutritious food it's quite it's extremely culturally important to many people um you know it's it's delicious um and it it's packed full of nutrients the problem we have is that we weigh way too much of it we expect the center of every meal to be meat welcome to science for the people i'm rochelle saunders with me is Anthony Warner. He graduated in biochemistry from Manchester University before embarking on a career in professional kitchens. He spent many years working in hotels, restaurants, and event catering in the Northwest and London before taking a job as a development chef in the food manufacturing industry, where he worked for over a decade developing recipes for some of the country's best-known brands and products. Frustrated by pseudoscience and misinformation in the food industry, in 2006, he started a blog, which led to the best-selling book, The Angry Chef, and a career in journalism. Two more books and countless arguments have followed. And he's here today to talk with us about his most recent book, Ending Hunger, The Quest to Feed the World Without Destroying It. Anthony, welcome. Lovely to have you here. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Okay, so one thing I want to talk to you about before we dig into any of the specifics of this book, which I think may surprise our listeners, but I don't think will surprise you at all. <laughs> um, our listenership is probably left leaning politically. We have done shows on what some people would perceive to be obviously controversial topics, sex, gender, class, race, politics. But the most angry, passionate feedback we have ever had on the episodes we've done about uh, are on the episodes <laughs> we've done about food and nutrition. Um, it used to surprise me, but it doesn't anymore. I just kind of expect that this episode is going to generate a small flurry of feedback of a type we don't normally see, even when we do a controversial show. Um, and I'm kind of interested to know, given you wrote this book, if this is just our show, or if you found the topic of food systems, sustainability, and nutrition to be similarly a similarly unexpected minefield. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I think it's, it's probably fair to say I've almost made a career out of that, um, out, out of food being a little bit controversial and a thing that gets people excited. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's incredibly tribal as well, I find food. Um, you know, and people have a lot of, uh, a lot, I mean, actually, the reason why I first started writing, people have a lot of inherent beliefs, which are often sort of slightly mistaken. But um, food, food's very much, I think over the past few years, certainly, food's very much become part of people's identity. You know, um, a lot of the people I engage with, like, um vegans or, or or meat eaters or sort of carn people on carnivore diets or keto dieters you know th that's become very much a sort of key thing about them you know it's, it's if you look on their social media profiles often it's the first thing they'll say about them so it's like the most important thing they want to say to the world about themselves is is what they you know what diet they want not just what they eat but what they don't eat seems to be incredibly important and when something becomes so much part of people's identity anything that challenges that ends up really challenging something very much at the heart of who they are and that causes controversy that makes people you know very angry it makes people you know react in all sorts of surprising ways um which you know i find surprising i love food but you know i find it surprising how how these these um arguments about food systems and arguments about diet and arguments about nutrition especially just end up being incredibly tribal incredibly um sort of vociferous and you know it, it's fascinating really um and, and i think it's a reflection on society more generally but food seems to be sort of um, very much at the heart of a of, of sort of a, a lot of uh what yeah, you know, what makes people people angry and and um you know makes them sort of challenge challenge each other what I find really interesting about it is it 
a lot of controversial topics tend to fall along predictable, what we think of as like predictable left right mm-hmm. lines. But what yeah. I find kind of interesting about food is it doesn't seem to follow those rules to the same mm-hmm. degree. I find the conversation and the controversy around food exists across the spectrum, but also within yeah. just about like, like if you were to zoom into any particular area of the political spectrum, just the left, just the right, way far left, way far right, you'd probably find a food controversy there. So yeah. it's and kind of interesting. Really surprising one. Yeah. yeah, it's kind yeah. of interesting to me that it it doesn't the the food values and food identities don't quite so straightforwardly slot into the obvious places we might expect it to slot no no i mean yeah organic is is, is a classic um one of, one of the classic sort of um examples of that because you know people might associate organic um farming and organic agriculture organic food consumption with a sort of a you know left-leaning liberal but um sort of sensibility but but actually you know, if you look at organic food and the organic movement, there, there's these incredibly strong connections to far right politics. You know, and, and I, think, I, I wrote a piece recently actually about a, one of the guys who got arrest, um, arrested storming the Capitol, the guy with the ridiculous um, sort of uh, horned helmet, if you remember him. And he he was refusing anything but organic food in in, in jail, and people were quite surprised about that. And, and the piece I wrote was just saying, no, this is you know, there's a long history of. Uh, far right beliefs and organic movement you know the purity of blood and soil you know it was perhaps a clue to that so you know yeah i mean i'm not saying that you know everyone who eats organic food is 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 a is a closet neo-nazi i wouldn't want to say anything like that but um you know there is this very very strong political connections um often it's uh no, I, I think it, I think that food, in some ways, um, diets, and for some people, has has replaced you know religion in some ways as a way we signal something important to ourselves about the world. And you'll read sort of almost religious-like narratives through a lot of diet ideology about purity and about you know cleansing yourself and about sort of um rediscovery of of yourself through through these sort of um cleansing and fasting rituals and and, you know that's it's become enormously intense parts of people's identity for a lot of people and yeah as you said it does fall along political lines often often quite surprisingly it's one of these things maybe that because food is something literally every one of us has to think about and manage and choose for ourselves in many cases every day. Um, it feels probably for a lot of us like it's something within our control, like we should be able to understand and, you know, really form ourselves around food choices. And obviously, as we're going to find out, uh, anytime <laughs> we get into food, uh, it's a lot more complicated than we might think. Yeah, yeah, and it's also something we put inside our body. You know, it's, it's that sort of very, um, you know, very at the heart of uh, of what it means means to be sort of human. You know, choosing what you choosing what you you, you do and don't eat is sort of a, a mark of civilization. And, and um, yeah, there's a long history of uh, of connection between religious ritual and food and, and, and oh, and you know, cultural value in food too. And, yeah, I mean, I mean you, yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's very complex. And to say it's just it's just food and it's just just what people eat i mean it you know uh, misunderstands most of history and i, I think you know <laughs> my my book does does go through some of that history and some of that you know wh- where some of that comes from and why why it is so important 
Yeah, it's one of those things where even the statement, it's just food, is in itself a piece of food culture, right? From a certain yeah, of kind is, of yeah. person who thinks a just certain calories, kind of way yeah. about food. But there's the people who are eating those sort of... Um, nutrition eating, shakes. Drinking those nutrition shakes you know, that, that provide apparently provide everything. I mean, you don't have to eat because you're the sort of person who's so busy that they, they the eating is... is you know too much too much effort you know yeah yeah that that and that is like you said is, is even rejecting food isn't isn't is a a, a food belief and, and and part of identity and, and status signaling and all that yeah very complex really why we make these decisions so the subtitle of your book is really what caught my eye the quest to feed the world without destroying it it definitely speaks to this kind of deep down feeling i've had in a while and this the, the core of my stomach based on knowing a bit about climate and sustainability science, a bit about the world's food industries, and a bit about agriculture, tech, and history, uh, where I always suspected perhaps these two things were inherently incompatible. So I'm curious what made you want to write this book? Because as soon as I saw it, I thought, I definitely <laughs> have to read this one because oh, I, I worry about this. Yes, I, I, I think... Um... Why did I want to write it? I mean, I, I when I, I first started writing, um, I don't think you just sort of briefly described it in the in the the, the bio you did at the beginning. I, yeah, a few years ago, I, I started writing a blog, and the blog was actually originally about nutrition and and, and health and the sort of uh, false claims people made about food and health and the, the ways we're made to feel guilty about how we eat and, and what we you know uh, how how we live our lives. Um, and uh, you know, I, I had a sort of vision bizarrely when I when I first started writing that blog, even though I didn't expect to be writing books, I wanted to cover food and health and then i wanted to cover sort of uh, obesity which i did in a second book and then i wanted to cover sustainability and uh, uh, food because i think that the areas which are very complex difficult almost impenetrable areas but they are areas where we're made to feel very guilty about our food choices and the way we eat and what my view is we should never be made to feel guilty about our food choices um but there is this big issue that the way we're eating now is 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 you know very harmful to to the planet and if you look into the future it's going to become even more harmful and you know it's completely unsustainable it, both in terms of the damage it's doing to the planet and the fact that we're having to feed an increasingly growing population with finite resources you know there, there is this this idea which has existed for such an incredibly long time at the the, the malthusian catastrophe that, that you know, eventually you just run out of resources in order to feed people properly um and i go quite deep into that and explain why even that is a sort of troubling false belief but but there's no no denying that there's a there's a serious issue with the way we eat now and the way we're going to be eating in the future and the impact that is having on the planet and it's it's incredibly important and we're not talking enough about it i think we talk a lot about climate change and i think that's fantastic but i don't think we talk about it enough about the actual behavioural changes and the changes to the way you eat that are going to have to happen in the next 30, 40, 50 years um, for us to sustainably be able to sustain a population and be able to do that without causing irrevocable damage to the planet. Um, so, yeah, I, I, and, the, and the things that interest me and the reason I write it really is, is because I think there's – you have these like horrendously complex issues which are incredibly difficult to, to get to the – 
to the bottom of and to fully understand. And then you have a lot of people oversimplifying it and, and, and selling sort of false narratives. And I'm really interested in those sort of false beliefs and those false narratives and the people trying to sort of exploit those exploit our misunderstandings and our fears um and i hopefully try and expose that but in the process of trying to expose that i have to go through a lot of explanation about what the actual impacts of our food systems are and how that came about through history and you know so so yeah i mean my my vision i suppose is to try and create a food system where people aren't made to feel guilty about how they eat i hope i kind of navigated that because with this book particularly it's quite a quite a tightrope to walk because there are serious problems with the way we we are currently um producing and consuming food as any of our listeners i'm sure know about me by this time uh your book very much speaks to i feel a core belief in my soul which is everything is very complicated (laughs) the solution (laughs) is not so easy yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> that 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 is definitely the case. And I, I, as I said, that's sort of at the heart of almost everything I write, because I, I look for these touch points where people are being misled, and you always find them in those issues, which are incredibly complex and you know cannot be simply explained, because you know, as people, we are we we we, we want simple answers. We want simple answers to complex problems, um, and when those simple answers don't exist. When when it actually takes a you know when when there's there's no simple solution you know which is the say which is the case in nutrition and health it's the case in nutrition and obesity it's the case in food systems and the environmental impact there's no simple one solution that we can apply and will make everything better when that happens that's when people turn up trying to sell things that are simple and wrong and I, my my right my mission in my writing in the world of food is to expose those people and tell everyone why they're trying to mislead you one of the things i appreciated you talking about in the book was the way we tend to deflect as soon as we get to some of those hard problems um about the sort of the the what about x problem you know let's talk about the problems of transportation sustainability and then someone will say okay but look at agriculture it's causing huge problems it's very unsustainable let's solve that problem first and then we look at that and it's like oh but what about electricity generation and it sort of goes on in this big circle of deflection and um you really kind of tackle this fairly early in the book before you even unpack anything to say we're not going to do that we're just going to actually talk about this yeah i think i think it's one of the biggest um, problems when you start talking about food systems um and environmental impact especially and even you know environmental campaigners who i respect for their work on 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 climate change they will say oh food is not that important we should be addressing fossil fuel emissions and maybe that's true but um you know i I think when you look into the numbers you you cannot tackle climate change without tackling agriculture and food systems in some way because they are a significant part of the picture um and they're an increasing part of the picture and there aren't really many strategies in place that are actually doing good work in order to, to 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 address them so they're going to become increasingly more important you know one of the one of the most um sort of disturbing um facts in the book is that if we continue to eat and produce food as we do as we are now and as it's increasing with with increasing population and increasing prosperity then then what will happen is by 2050 agriculture on its own will have 
produced enough emissions to raise global temperatures by two degrees. Um, and that's if everything else is reduced down to zero. Now, everything else isn't going to be reduced down to, to zero. So you know, agriculture desperately has to be addressed. And it's not going to solve it just by solve climate change by addressing agriculture. But you're never going to solve climate change without addressing agriculture. You know, it, it's, it's, it's so important. And also, I think one thing that I, I think is really important to get across about agriculture and food systems is that it's not just about emissions. You know, right? there, agriculture has multiple impacts. It's not just about sort of methane from cows burps. Agriculture has multiple impacts. It has impacts on on land use and biodiversity, which is obviously you know, this other sort of parallel crisis, which is related in many ways. You know, as, as we're deforesting, we're releasing carbon. But um, you know, it, it also has impact on water systems, and water is going to become an increasing problem over the next 10, 15, 20 years in ma- many parts of the world. It has sort of impact on on soil and, and erosion, sort of changes in land. You know, it has multiple use, multiple harms um, beyond just emissions. So agriculture is so important in terms of addressing our environmental impact on the world and then one you know this sort of whataboutery of just saying you know oh well you know why should i change how i eat because you know x person is flying around in a private jet it's not a one or the other thing we have to address all those things you know just i thing is i'm interested in food and i work in food and you know that's where i can perhaps have an impact so that's why i'm focused on food yeah everyone's sort of stuck in a you go first loop yeah, yeah, yeah. Or just why should I? Why should I do X if someone else, if X person is doing Y? Which I guess is fair enough in some ways. You know, uh, why should I not enjoy this this food that I want to enjoy? If you know some rich people can, you know. But th- th- there's what everybody can have some sort of water boundary about what them. You know, it's just it's just a a a reason reason not not to act and not to do anything. So I do want to talk about the idea of land use. As you say, a lot of the talk about um, the problems of agriculture and our food systems right now tend to focus on um, carbon emissions. It tends to focus on transportation, like you say, cow methane, that kind of stuff. Um, but some of the bigger problems are actually around the land and the soil itself. So can you talk a little bit about um, how some – I guess maybe start about talking about how we use way too much land to create the food <laughs> we currently create. Um, yeah, I, you know, land use is obviously um, incredibly important. Um, you know, we, we we cannot keep expanding, you know, into natural habitats, which is what we're doing essentially. You know, as we require more food, um, and we require more land to grow that food, um, and we're expanding into natural habitats. We're cutting down forests. We're we're destroying, you know, sort of wetlands. We're we're destroying, um, yeah, you know, destroying biodiversity in, in in such a catastrophic way, you know, which is going to be written into the into the the, the fossil record. For, for 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 the rest of the life of this planet, you know, um, the, the impact of, of 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 humanity on on you know species extinction is going to be uh, as serious as any of the sort of bigger mass extinctions, and, and happening you know far far quicker than any of them. Um, and so it's a, it's a horrible problem to address. And most of that most of that biodiversity loss is is down to food production, is down to agriculture. Um, yeah, beyond that, we're also, you know, ha- having a, a, a detrimental effect on the soil in many parts of the world. You know, 
there, there are uh, there's a lot of misinformation about how you know about about about, about soil and how much soil loss is, is occurring but you know soil is this incredibly important thing that we don't really think about you know we, we kind of think about it as being being dirt um, and unimportant but you know the way we farm on land is is causing carbon to be lost from the soil which again adds to 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 um, to, to climate change and uh, also you know what what if, if you if you destroy soil um you can't get it back within any sort of a time scale that um that humans w- would understand you know it's it's takes an enormous amount of time to make soil from from rock um you know, it sort of gets ground down and and, and eaten by microorganisms organisms and combines organic matter and creates this this soil and soil most life on earth um is is dependent upon dependent upon it and it's incredibly important and we're kind of mining it in a in, in a completely unsustainable way um and you know you, what you get is 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 sort of dead lands you get desertification and and, and all these sort of um, all these problems which which um again sort of uh impact on climate change but also impact on biodiversity and and you know as as we destroy soil you have to move on to to new land and, and the only real available um sort of fertile land for us to expand into as we destroy the soil is tropical forests and that's why so much of our tropical forests are are being being destroyed and i guess the real tragedy is that you know mo- most of that destruction most of our the pressure on land use is not necessarily from um you know the fact that we just need to feed the world you know which is obviously a, a noble thing to do and you know the the heart of my book really is about about how incredibly successful we've been about again about fighting hunger in the world and how incredibly important that is but most of most of the uh sort of uh, eating into natural habitats most of the use of land is occurring just because of the way we farm and, the, and our, our focus on particularly inefficient land use methods of, of food production. Um, and, you know, we, we could easily feed the entire world really quite happily on, on, on a fraction of the land we currently use. But, you know, we're not doing that because of, because of the way, way we want to eat. It's not, it's not just about um, making enough food. It's, the, the way we currently farm it has 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 a dramatic impact on on the amount of land we need and that's you know causing this horrendous um loss of biodiversity and and and, and loss of um natural habitat can you give us an overview about what it is or what the parts of the way we currently farm are that are causing um us to be needing and requiring so much land I mean, there's there's a lot to it. Like I said, I can't can't give you a, a, a quick and simple answer. Um, you know, the way we um, uh, the way we sort of plow land, plowing is just not very good for for land, and and that that causes a lot of um, the, you know loss of organic matter from soil and a lot of um, release of carbon, and also ends up with soil degradation and ends up you know, sort of having to move onto different lands. Um, some of the way we uh, use sort of um, artificial fertilizers has had an impact on on soil as well. Um, but in terms of sort of actual land use, it, you know, it's mostly because of our focus on um, you know animal agriculture unfortunately and, you know and i don't like to sort of um you know the, the, our relationship with meat is a complex one and the environmental impact of meat is actually a complex thing 
to 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 get to grips with it's you know not not as simple as everyone should go vegan although many people will tell you it is that simple um but the, the you know the reality is that in terms of land use animals are quite an efficient inefficient way to to um to produce food because often what you're doing is you're taking edible human protein and you're feeding it to animals and they're doing all the things animals do running around and you know making noise and purring and and you know being pigs or chickens or or cows um and you know that's an inefficient way to produce protein you know that they're doing a lot of stuff that isn't just growing protein um and it'd be much better to feed that food directly to humans we you know in the in the world right now and this is increasing every year but right now we um feed enough food to animals that to feed Enough sort of human edible food gets fed, put into animal troughs um, to feed, uh, you know, 3.5 billion people. You know, the whole of Asia could be fed with the amount that we're currently feeding to livestock. Um, yeah, and that's that's got to be a, that's got to be a, something that we should seriously reflect upon. Um, you know, that that's an extraordinary amount of food, um, and it's it's fed to animals in, in an extremely inefficient way um and it's also often some of the highest environmental impact um crops you know such as palm and, and soy and it, you know most of the most of people talk about the impact of soy in in in, in um in brazil and it, it's you know highly significant um cause of uh of deforestation of the brazilian rainforest but you know most of that crop is fed to animals um and you know, then it's converted into sort of edible protein in this in this very efficient way, inefficient way. Um, and you know, in a world where 800 million people don't have enough food to eat, you know, are, are literally sort of um, starving, the fact that we feed that much human edible produce to animals, I think, is is you know a little obscene, really, and something that we we really need to think hard about and address. I mean, the topic of meat is in particular right now, I think one of the more polarizing issues when we're talking about food and food sustainability. There's a lot of people with a lot of opinions, and a lot of them are quite extreme, running the gamut from not only should um, you become a vegan, but everybody across the world should be a vegan, or at least large swaths of people should be vegan, to everybody should eat way more meat, because meat is actually the solution. We shouldn't be eating as much plants. Let's just go full meat all the time, right? Um, and of course, the truth is really somewhere in the middle. So I was yeah. hoping we could talk a little bit and unpack some of this because there's yeah. so much misinformation and polarizing ideas about meat in particular. I don't think there's any any area where there, there is more in, in, in terms of the environmental impact of food. I don't think there's any area where there's more misinformation. And like you said, there's, there's these extreme groups. You know, what we started talking about today, these extreme sort of very tribal groups um you know vegan is a is a very tribal veganism is a very tribal thing um and you know i i have um plenty of time for for for, for vegan groups I, I i interact with a lot of vegan groups in the uk um um but there, there are sort of people who are extraordinarily extreme uh who uh, I, and I think that's that's very problematic. Um, and you know, right, like you said, right, right through. And, and the thing that I didn't see coming was that the, the people would start sort of claiming that um, 
that an all meats diet is the solution, especially an all beef diet is a solution to to climate change. And you know that that has sort of come about and is. I mean, a, a, a big thing to unpack if we want to look at those those sort of arguments. Um, so yeah, meat is um, this this horrendously complex issue. As I said, there, there there are it's a very inefficient way to produce protein generally. In terms of land use, especially things like beef are are you know horrendous. You know, a hundred times um, less efficient than you know to to than uh, to produce a kilogram of protein you know uh, a cow will require about 100 times as much land as as soy will to produce produce a kilogram of protein um and so that looks looks pretty terrible and and a very hot you know beef tends to be very high in terms of water use and has this sort of climate emissions issue about it because they they burp out um burp out methane um and methane is has a you know they sort of yeah convert um, carbon dioxide into methane, I suppose you'd sort of say, um, and methane has this higher climate impact than, than carbon dioxide, so that has an impact, you know, a climate impact. Um, and you know, there, there's such an extraordinary number of uh, cows on the planet that um, that is enough to sort of have a significant um, impact on on climate change. Um, you know, and agriculture generally has a significant impact on on climate change. Um, but we still need to produce food. So, you know, cattle seems to be the sort of area which we can address. I think the sort of generally accepted figure is that about 14% of climate change emissions are caused by livestock, um, you know, which is obviously a significant amount. Um, uh, and people will sometimes look at sort of uh, countries like the US and say, look, it's much lower. And we look at that and you go, yeah, it is much lower. But that's perhaps because the US is this incredibly climate heavy economy. Um, and, uh, you know, so you would expect it to be a lower percentage. But on a global scale, it's about sort of 14 percent probably of climate change emissions. Um, and so that looks pretty terrible. And it generally looks pretty terrible for cows. There is, but it is complicated. You know, uh, if you look around the world, for instance, if you told everyone in the world to be vegan, there are plenty of people. I think there are about two billion people who depend upon agriculture, on animal agriculture, to some extent for their for their livelihood. Um, and you know, you're going to have to think about if you want everyone to go vegan, you're going to have to think pretty hard about what what those people are going to do, because in many parts of the world and on many. You know, even in many areas of the UK, actually, there is no other agricultural livelihood strategy that 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 can you know produce um, anything from a certain areas of land. You know, certain marginal lands, livestock grazing is the only thing that people could do. And in many parts of the world, that was their only li- livelihood strategy. And so, you know, telling the world to go vegan is all very well, but for many people. Um, you know, many people would, would would starve if if you you tell them that's that's what they have to do. Um, and uh, you know, it, it's it's actually you know, meat is and uh, you know, uh, animal products generally they're generally quite nutritious. You know, they are generally quite good. Um, so if you're sort of um, looking at sort of grassland um, and you're getting out putting cows on there and they're producing milk and they're producing protein from essentially sort of marginal grassland that you know that, that that's a pretty good use of that land in, in, in many many sort of circumstances um, and a pretty good way to use it and in in many parts of the world 
the sort of a certain amount of, of animal produce in people's diets is it does an incredible amount for their nutrition status you know the, 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 there's there's malnutrition effects um probably sort of two two billion people around the world it's the biggest cause of non-communicable diseases um you know it, it's we we have to think about that and, and and putting some animal produce into people's diets can make an enormous difference because you know, generally they're complete proteins they're, they're rich in minerals and rich, rich rich in all these things so you know th- there are many reasons and actually as well you know animals are in in sort of mixed farming and small farms where most of the world's food is produced some animals can be extremely beneficial they can they can they can um, sort of fer- produce fertilizer for the ground they can use use up you know, so eat crop residues and eat eat stuff that, that, that's otherwise sort of um would just be be waste um and uh, you know can also you know be, they, they're often providing labor for farmers as well you know often carrying goods you know so it, it's it's a very complex picture if you suddenly say everyone to go vegan well no you know i i don't believe that's 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 anything like the case and what i will say about food efficiency as well you know even though i've sort of given this sort of speech about how you know beef are so much um less efficient than than, than soy which is true you know what i'm doing is comparing you know the, the one of the one of the most productive plants um that there are with you know one of the least efficient ways of of, of um producing protein that there is animal protein that there is if I compare, say, um, pig to uh, sort of broccoli, which is a quite odd, odd thing to be doing, but I'm going to compare a pig to broccoli, then broccoli is actually terrible in terms of the amount of protein it produces per per hectare of land. It hardly, there's hardly any protein at all. Celery is absolutely terrible. Tomatoes are absolutely terrible. All these things, all these sort of vegetables that don't have much protein in, they're terrible at producing protein. They're terrible at producing calories per area of land. You know, they're, they're really, really inefficient. But for some reason, we don't sort of we don't think about them as being bad because we want everyone to eat lots of fruit and vegetables, quite rightly. Um, uh, and I, I think we should probably think about meat uh, production in the same way. We should think about it really saying, you know, we're producing very sort of nutritious food. It's quite it's extremely culturally important to many people. Um, you know, it's it's delicious um, and it, it's packed full of nutrients. The problem we have is that we eat way, way too much of it. We expect the center of every meal to be meat. You know, we, we eat meat sort of a couple of – many people eat meat a couple of times a day. In the most developed economies, you know, meat, meat production is sort of uh, free – uh, two or three times the, the the global average and is increasing you know, sort of year on year um and you know, it's the, the the volume the amount of meat they're eating is problematic it's not the, the existence of meat you know it's the the fact that it's culturally become really really important for it to be the center of every meal and that's where the problems arise you know it's the amount of consumption that's happening um is is using all this land and, and using all this water and 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 sort of having this sort of climate impact and, and these emissions um but if we kept it down to a sensible level and we kept a sort of sensible food system meat can be a part of a really efficient well-functioning circular food system the problem we've done in in most of the world is we've, we've become really focused on efficient production of meat and we it's kind of lost its way as part of a circular food system it's lost its way as using the marginal land it's lost its way as something that that, that uses up food waste it's lost its way as something that produces sort of fertilizer we're, we're producing got these incredibly efficient meat farms and all they're doing is producing meat and you know they're using sort of high energy um 
soy and and palm based feeds and you know the, the our insatiable demand for meat has created these sort of incredibly efficient farms and we've really lost the way of what meat was actually supposed to be in in, a, in an agricultural system you know, in in small scale mixed farming meat animals are incredibly valuable and incredibly important and we certainly shouldn't lose that but with the amount we want to eat the small scale mixed farms are, are not really producing the food the meat and animal produce uh, at the level we we we, we need it it definitely feels like, especially in developed worlds, meat has become such a central focus of our diet that it it's just to the exclusion of all other things. You look at a, at a plate of food at a restaurant or at a plate of food that most people would prepare, and it tends to really – like meat is the central point, and the sort of rest of it is just the trappings around the meat, which is probably a fairly good metaphor for our food system in the developed world. <laughs> it's all just like meat enabling. Yeah, yeah, and very much. And I think that is – to an extent that's changing you know i mean i I think the rise of plant-based eating in in this country has been actually extraordinary and actually the last year as well with everything going on it's been been absolutely extraordinary how quickly you know plant-based eating and 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 a better focus on on vegetables and and plant protein Uh, you know the change is happening i suppose um it's just not happening fast enough and not having to, to, to to the sort of large enough extent um but yeah, you are right. Most of our favourite dishes are sort of focused around, if not meat, then some form of animal produce, um, and that's because they are delicious. Um, but it's also it's also a cultural thing, you know. There, there are there are cultures around the world where that's not the case, um, and they don't eat badly. They're not fo- you know, not cultures that aren't focused on food. They're focus- focused on on sort of um, you know. The, different things other than meat and um you know i think it's important that we 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 try and shift that i think it's you know that that's that's how we're going to get significant change um because meat's just become the diet you know the high meat um you know i don't really want to say american diet but i guess it is the american diet that sort of high meat american diet um it has become the the food that the world aspires to and you know we we really need to sort of shift that and make the world aspire to something something that is different I think also when we think about the way we're even trying to replace meat in our diet, it is still very meat focused, right? When we think about the like fake burgers, the the veggie burgers, uh, the veggie soy meats, um, the lab grown meats, um, even our efforts to move some people or provide um, less meat to people is still somehow trying to replicate meat rather than um, – diversify away from even the concept of meat. So I think it also speaks to how deeply embedded it is at a cultural level, that even when we try and reduce the amount of meat or for people who want to try and remove it, your solution is not to go to uh, places of culinary design that just don't involve meat. It is to go and look for the replacement for the meat, right? (laughs) Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think you know, I'm someone who works in the food industry, and certainly in the UK, I think people people do see those sort of um, you know, the fake burgers, the fake sausages, whatever, um, as something of a stopgap, you know, to get people away from this sort of obsession that it has to be meat, and perhaps we will move to, to something different over the next few years as people, 
you know, as, as it becomes a more, um, you know, sort of more of a sort of accepted cultural movement, that, uh, you know, perhaps a certain number of days or a certain number of meals are, are going to be are going to be meat free, and, and you know, <coughs> the the um, the burgers and the sausages are a way of getting people past that sort of a point where they have to have meat every day because it gives them something. Um, but it, it also, you know, I think. Um, the, 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 to an extent, sort of um, products made out of meat, especially chicken, actually, um, fit nicely into our culture, fit nicely into our style of eating mm. um, and, and, and the way we live now, which is obviously different to, 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 to the way people were living sort of 50, 100, 150 years ago. Um, so, you know, we need to you need to, you need food that is sort of that fits culturally you know a bean casserole doesn't do the same job as a chicken nugget you know um uh, so you need something to get the kind of does the same job as a chicken nugget and the moment we're at a point where we're trying to make it taste exactly like chicken hopefully we might in the future make it make it taste of, of you know, have a have a variety of different tastes and flavors um but you know, I think I think it, I think it's important to to design and develop foods which which do that job of of sort of um, meeting the, the the our cultural and lifestyle expectations. I find this an interesting discussion because it's people. There's a group of people that seem very resistant to cutting out any amount of meat. Uh, in fact, they would love for their diets to contain more meat and in particular even can feel very threatened when meat is quote unquote sneakily snuck in. Um, you talk in your book about the Greg's vegan sausage roll, which was a surprising controversy here in the UK. I remember it quite well when my Twitter feed exploded about the Greg's vegan sausage rolls. Um, and that I find kind of fascinating. We want to replace meat, but also some people are incredibly threatened by that potential perceived replacement of meat. Uh, it's, it seems like you can't win in any direction. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think the str- strangest thing about for me, I understand that someone might go, oh, I don't want to eat a vegan sausage roll. That's fine. I mean, you know, if, if they don't want to eat it, I'm pretty sure no one's forcing them to eat it. You know, I'm pretty sure there aren't people going around forcing forcing meat eaters to eat vegan. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, they didn't take off the regular sausage rolls. It was just an addition to the menu. An option, you know, which is kind of what businesses do. You know, they look at a consumer segment and say, "What what can we, what can we, um, you know, what can we sell for them?" Um, No, it was it was that strange, um, strange thing where many people, including sort of um, you know, fairly. Not necessarily people I agree with, but fairly important cultural commentators um, like Piers Morgan, for instance, got got very angry that these sausage rolls existed. You know, it was like it was seemed to be a, like an affront on something. Um, uh, 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 you know, sort of that they they hold hold very dear. Their sort of values are somehow being affronted by the existence of a, a of a sausage roll, um, and which is you know, bizarre when you think about it. But I did did start to really think about why that might be, and and I spoke to a number of sort of people, psychologists. Actually, the the best insight I got was from um, from a religious scholar who who does a lot of a lot of writing about food, and he 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 told me that um uh. People get very, you know, people like to sort of categorize the world into, um, into sort of, um, things they understand. Yeah. So there's usually binary categories. So, you know, sort of, um, dog, cat, man, woman, you know, um, 
an animal plant is, is one of those sort of categories where, where which people like to sort of by which people like to divide the world it's a very sort of fundamental category and so perhaps when when something comes along that challenges challenges those categories you know sort of between plant and animal what, what is this a sausage roll but it's made from pea or actually i think the greg's one is made from from microprotein um uh, you know what is it you know is it is it is it a plant or is it, is it an animal and, and when you sort of challenging those boundaries people get very very uncomfortable and and they you know they, they don't like anything that that challenges the way they sort of split up and divide the world and that helps them sort of navigate the world in, in a in, in an effective way um and so when those boundaries are challenged then people will kind of um you know just just kind of get angry and and shout at shout end up shouting at sausage rolls on national television which is you know it, it's it's kind of um tells you a lot about what we're saying about how how sort of you know, how important food is and the sort of debates that debates that it causes uh, the existence of this product was was making so many people so so very angry i think we've kind of shifted a little bit past that now i think it was a bit of a bump we had to get over and we kind of expect that we're just going to see these things around and people don't get quite as offended but you know throughout europe um you know france especially they're 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 campaigning um, very hard to to have legal protections put in place so you can't call a a vegan sausage a sausage and you can't call you know a burger a, a vegan burger a burger because you're gonna because those those terms are sort of will be protected to to things um, which contain meat and the same with milk and yogurt and and, and sort of uh, products like that so you know there, there is a lot of um, and that's sort of obviously. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a corporate interest at play there because um, some of the livestock producers are perhaps worried about these sort of uh, growing market for for vegan products eating into their market share a little bit. But you know, um, it's it's also sort of tells of, of people a lot of people being very sort of culturally uncomfortable with the existence of something that calls itself a vegan sausage, which you know is, is slightly strange, I suppose. Yeah, it makes me feel like people are worried about accidentally eating a vegan sausage. <laughs> <laughs> Which I find yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I, I can't understand why, why you, why you would be. I mean, you know, t- to be honest, I'll tell you, I, I work in the food industry, um, and I haven't worked that much in processed meats, um, but I, I, I know people who have, and, and um, I'm aware of how that market operates, and all this stuff, all, all these. I know, sort of, um, a lot of these, sort of. Uh, vegan startups selling themselves as these sort of cutting edge tech companies where they're not really i mean basically everything that you make a vegan sausage out out of is is stuff that was has been used for years in order to to make really really cheap meat sausages you know essentially sort of bulk them out you put in you know soy protein and pea protein and methyl cellulose and, and all these ingredients um and you know when you the really really cheap sort of nasty low meat content sausages and uh, burgers that we've been we ate through the sort of uh, i ate probably through the, through the 70s and 80s they were all made with this exactly the same stuff with a tiny little bit of meat in just to, to kind of uh, make it a, a beef burger um you know these days what, what you're doing is is taking out all the meat and then you're selling that at a premium um which you know it may, you know, so the idea that someone might be sort of someone who eats a lot of sort of meat products is suddenly like oh i can't eat anything that's you know made out of plants well you know trust me for many years you've been eating a lot of uh highly processed plant ingredients to bulk out your your meat sausages 
I think as well, there's right now, because there's a lot of focus on this, we're looking at different alternatives in particular when it comes to meat. Of course, there's also a big um, tech world push right now to create lab-grown meat, to find a techni- technological solution, a disruptive technological solution to our food problems. And um, even though I work in the tech industry, I find this increasingly make me, it just increasingly makes me go, hmm, I think, I think in the book you refer to it as the robot bees problem. <laughs> it's 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 a it's a, a tech solution to what what is essentially you know requires a requires a a, a large scale cultural change. Yes, look, lab grown meat is, is this big thing, and I'm sure that to some extent lab grown meat will play a part in our food future. Um, and, and I think there's a company um, selling lab grown meat in a restaurant in Singapore. I think I haven't <laughs> haven't been there, funnily enough. But um, you know that, that it is it is for sale to the public now um i think it's chicken chicken nugget basically um and you know it is possible to do i, I know people who've worked in this field and um not in the field of lab grown meat we're growing cell cultures growing growing you know, animal animal tissues and culture and it's an incredibly difficult thing to do it, you know it requires various sort of mediums to grow on and and, and they don't want to grow and, and, and it, it's pretty um pretty uh, pretty uh difficult thing to do to persuade an animal cell to just kind of produce produce um produce meat um but it is possible i mean the idea that this is somehow a solution to the our consumption of meat and we'll all move over to 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 lab grown lab grown steaks grown in grown in factories i think is fanciful to be honest i mean not not i'm, I'm sure we'll have some some um, lab grown steaks or burgers or whatever being sold within the next sort of 10 15 years but the idea that you will make any sort of dent in the you know sort of 300 billion kilograms of meat that gets sold um and consumed around the world each year is you know the, the scale of investment in factories that you would have to create i think i, I give some sort of sort of calculation of the trillions and trillions of of of, of dollars that that would cost in order to to set up to produce something which is incredibly difficult to produce you know the, the, these cells that just don't want to grow in this way um and you know the idea that that's going to sort of be scalable um to have enough of an impact to really make a make any sort of difference i think is just 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 wrong um i think it will give a few uh rich um rich consumers who want to not feel guilty about the meat they're eating um that it will give them a chance to 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 eat meat but you know and actually if you look at it eat, i mean however and if it, you need to Cells don't just grow from air. You need to actually feed those cells somehow, and they'll probably be more efficient than like a whole cow or a whole chicken. But you know, chicken especially is incredibly efficient, and you're going to have that. Those mediums which you feed the cells on are going to have to come from somewhere. You know, my concern about feeding three and a half billion people's worth of food to animals in order to produce livestock will, will equally apply if we're feeding three and a half billion billion sort of worth of people's worth of food to cells in culture that's equally horrific um so you know the the efficiency of this production i think is, is yet to be challenged the energy use that it's going to require where that energy is going to come from that's yet to be yet to be properly addressed um you know where we're going to grow the stuff that needs to be fed to these these, these cells is yet to be addressed no i mean it's it's you know that it's no way a solution to to the the, the global production of meat and the harm that that's causing so you just 
doing it on the scale is just just not feasible um and like i said it's a robot bees problem because th- there's another you know issues with 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 bees in north america there's about three or four set startups developing robot bees which actually do appear in black mirror an episode of black mirror where they go around killing people not saying that's going to happen but um you know robot bees startups developing robot bees the the problem is that you know the sort of dying of of, of bee colonies and and, and Death, death of bee populations the way to address that is is you know is, is our, our cultural changes and changes to the way we farm and changes to sort of um measures to introduce greater biodiversity on farms you know we, we've got all we've got we know how to address those things but instead we're trying to solve the problem with with robot bees and i'm, I'm increasingly concerned we're going to try and solve big global problems with you know things like robot bees which are just not you know, not addressing the, the 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 greater problems, but just kind of a, a tech sticking plaster. I feel like the tech industry in particular now is so focused on a certain type of culture that is looking that ultimately what it does is it makes a certain type of problem irrelevant by replacing it with an entirely different but just as problematic problem. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably 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 fair enough. And also, it's just, like a change of problem scenery. Yeah, I think understanding the scale of global agriculture as well. You know, understanding how just how big an industry industry it is, and how important an industry it is. You know, it's it's the most it's the most important industry on the planet by 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 a huge distance producing food is, is the most important of all human activities underlies under underpins absolutely everything else that we do you know if we, we i think we could survive without most things you know we could survive without you know computers and, and, and mobile phones and and, and podcasts and, and um you know skype and and and, and you know uh, almost anything we have we could probably survive without sort of um, without heating and we could probably survive without electric light but if we stopped making and producing food then we're all dead within a few weeks um you know uh, a few fairly unpleasant weeks so without that sort of food industry you know it's the most important thing in the world and you know sort of ba- the, the fact that that's sort of the way we produce and consume food has has all but eliminated mass famine and you know slashed the percentage of people who who experience sort of severe hunger and lifted so many people out of food poverty such an extraordinary number of people in, uh, who now don't really have to think about food at all you know don't ha- you know have, have enough food to eat pretty much all the time um you know the fact that that has happened is the most extraordinary um achievement of of humanity um and you know it's, it's very easy to forget how remarkable that is and how incredible an achievement that is um and and what extraordinary scale that occurs on um so the idea that you can address that with with these these you know, you can sort of somehow fundamentally disrupt and change that that system um, is you know generally pretty fanciful. I also want to talk a little bit about food waste because I found this to be a really interesting section of the book, um, and for me, it spoke to me 
profoundly because I was a person living on their own, a single person household for quite a long time. And one of the most frustrating things I found on a daily basis was food wasn't built for me at a grocery store. Food at a grocery store presumes a certain number of people in a household and it packages stuff up in a way that's convenient to sell. But if you are in particular a single person or even a, a couple, um, it can be very difficult to, to use that food. Um, I throw away a lot less food than I used to, um, but that's because my partner and I very carefully plan our food week. We uh, prepare a lot of food on the weekends and we specifically prepare food that we'll keep for the week and that will feed us for the entire week. So we generate comparably a lot less waste than I certainly used to, but we still generate waste even with that careful planning. I had to throw away from some celery last week because I can only buy it in a big you know, lump sum. I needed three stalks of celery and instead I had to buy a package. Um, and I find that incredibly frustrating. And in particular, how we as consumers are made to feel guilty kind of from a cultural level, even as children about food waste. Um, and I don't even know necessarily that it's I think we would always feel a little bit guilty about having to scrape food off our plates, knowing that there are people who don't have enough food. So I think some of that is probably good, just a mindfulness about food to be aware of what you're eating and how much and trying not to throw a lot away. But this sort of mixture of of the way we sell food and the way we pressure and encourage people to go make your own food, make sure you're having family dinners, don't buy that prepackaged pizza, don't buy that single packaged food that's perfectly sized for one person who just wants to eat dinner. Um, it's you get a lot of mixed messages. Um, and this part of your book really spoke to me as someone who found that incredibly frustrating and still often finds it incredibly frustrating. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's really interesting what you said. Then um, I, I think um, we talked about food tribalism and, and how that's sort of such a massive thing. I think food waste is probably the one thing that I can probably get everyone to agree on that food waste is bad. You know, it's, it's an extraordinary amount of food we waste. I mean, one third of all all, all, the, all the food we produce gets wasted in some way. Um, you know, most of that in 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 you know, this country and, and most developed countries actually happens in the home. Um, uh, you know, obviously throughout uh, our, um, food, uh, throughout sort of our, you know, sort of agriculture, production, um, you know, retail, they're, they're, they're pretty efficient. You know, they've got a, a quite a, quite a, a big interest in not wasting much food and they have a lot of technology and a lot of, um, you know, good planning and, you know, a lot less food gets wasted than perhaps we, 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 we might imagine throughout the, throughout the food system. Yeah, you know, people talk about sort of things like wonky veg and things like that, but actually, you know, won wonky veg might not get sold in supermarkets, but does get used by the food industry. You know, people don't just throw it away because the carrot's not straight; they'll use it, and it, 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 it'll sell for a lower value, but it's not necessarily waste. Most waste in, in developed countries happens in the home, and I think one of the big, you know, all of us agree that's bad, and we all say, "Oh, you know, it's terrible, and we shouldn't waste food." And like you said, we have it culturally instilled into us um, from a very young age that wasting food is bad, and how can you throw it away when you know people are people are starving? Um, and you know, we kind of all agree it, it almost there's something sort of a 
you know, sort of visceral and, and, and unpleasant about having to waste food. I mean, I'm a chef, so maybe that's just maybe that's just me. But I think it's true for a lot of people, actually. I think a lot of people really get, you know, sort of feel it when they have to throw away food. Um, but we do it a huge amount. And, and it's interesting why. I mean, I think you have to unpack a lot about our food system in order to explain why. Um, you know, some of it is the in, inappropriate pack sizes that, that food is sold in, you know, packs of four leeks might help the supermarket sort of reduce reduce food waste, but doesn't help, you know, it just pushes it down the chain, essentially. Um, it just sort of hides the food waste from their bottom yeah, line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It pushes it pushes it onto the consumer essentially you know because you your people will want people to be told you know you should cook fresh food and you should you know, you cook with fresh ingredients and that's the ultimate goal and you should cook your family sort of a, a meal made from made from fresh vegetables and then yeah obviously that's a that's a, that's a that's a good pretty good goal i think it's a pretty good thing to want to do and to aspire to but you know in order to make that one recipe you have to buy leeks you have to buy you know, 70 grams of coriander you have to buy you know a, a, a head of celery like you said you have to buy you know all these things and, and half of them you'll use a bit and, and then half of them will sit around and unless you're you're incredibly focused and incredibly versatile cook you will waste a lot of that food um and you know what how how can we address that you know perhaps some of it is, is unpacking some of our food culture understanding why we have this obsession with having to cook everything from fresh you know why can we not sort of, why do we make people feel guilty um about about sort of convenient convenient choices which are you know might be sort of better designed for them um uh, and and would produce food waste or, or or why actually do we have to you know even sort of culturally unpacking why and this is actually quite a slightly terrifying thing for me but you know, culturally unpacking why we, ha- we insist on having that sort of main family meal all together you know if we were eating in sort of cafes cafeterias institutions um, they would waste far less food in, in, in feeding us um, so could we shift that sort of main meal that we have into lunchtime where most people are eating out of home obviously not now you know when i wrote the book that was that was the case i don't think many people are eating outside the home now but you know are there big things that we really have to culturally unpack because given that everybody agrees that food waste is a terrible terrible thing um it's it's incredible how how little we've managed to shift the dial and i think what we really have to do is, is start looking fundamentally at the 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 underlying principles of our food system and unpack them and look where this actual waste is coming from because otherwise all we're doing is making people feel people who, who are almost always trying to do their best making them feel guilty um and i think that's a problem but we, we kind of always fall back on oh we just need to educate people we just need to teach them how to how to cook we you know we need to teach them better and, and and make them understand more about how terrible food waste is i don't think that's the case I, I really don't i think i think it's 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 a matter of looking at the reasons why this waste is occurring and, and most of them are sort of fundamentally at the heart of our our food values and you know seeing if there's there's a way forward that that sort of slightly addresses it because you know, it is a horrendous problem it is i think um there's all i mean it's been written about a huge amount. There's there's all sorts of horrendous figures on food waste about how 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 harmful it is. I think it's the you know, if it, if food waste was a country, which is kind of a weird concept to think of food waste being a country, but if it was, then it would be the third largest um, emitter of um, climate change emissions after the US and China. Um, and you know we're we're throwing away um, food that could. You know, we're throwing away a third of all our food, so food that could feed billions of people. Um, and you know, like I say, there's a world where 800 million people are are chronically hungry, um, and you know, we're we're still sort of 
throwing using a third of our agricultural production to fill up the bin which is you know needs addressing somehow um and but actually doing it i think is 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 far more of a challenge and requires something you know more fundamental than just telling consumers they're being bad I'm curious uh, to find out, it wasn't anywhere in your book, um, but in the last few years, there's been a big rise in companies that will basically like assemble uh, a package for you of just what you need to cook a particular meal. Um, and those have become increasingly popular. I uh, There's some people I know, friends and family who uh, use these a lot. Um, they're now making three to five meals a, a week from these types of services, and uh, they've started to do do cooking that they never really used to do before have certainly expanded their palates. And one of the things they say is it's great to just get exactly what you need and not have to worry about, all right, now what am I going to do with the rest of this spinach? Or what am I going to do with uh, this shelf of spices? Um, so I, I'd be curious to find out if your research has told you anything about that or what your thoughts are to that industry that's kind of surfaced in the last five, eight years. Yeah, I, I think um, uh, you know it's it's a good way of addressing this problem. Um, I, I I do know quite a lot about about the industry. I don't think I covered it particularly in the book or, or at all. Actually, I, I think there's been some studies on on the on the sort of um, climate change impact of 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 those, and they generally, in terms of food waste, it's it's, it's a huge benefit because you get you know uh, enough leaks to make the dish and enough. You know, whatever coriander to, to you know and, and the right number of spices and, and there's no waste and everything's in one box I mean, the, the issue is obviously um the the packaging and, and and i think that that has been been um you know held up as being a, a detriment to these things and then some of the sort of uh some of the um life cycle analysis of the entire the entire dish occasionally that that sort of comes up as being being an issue but but i know that all those companies are addressing it uh, addressing those those issues um in terms of packaging and looking at better packaging options and you know there are some which are, are pretty pretty low in terms of, of packaging and and um you know i think um it's always a challenge uh, in this country certainly it's always a, a big challenge if you're trying to trying to introduce recyclable packaging about the fact that it's not you know how, how you recycle stuff is not unified around the country um but you know that said there's a lot of good work going on in the area i i think these things are the way forward actually some work i'm doing at the moment i'm not going to give a commercial plug um because it's not not that far advanced yet but i I, i'm working on trying to um create some of these sort of similar type products but a lower lower sale price because you know these the companies that you're talking about are generally um you know sort of uh slightly slightly middle class um definitely they're, higher they're, price they're pretty points, expensive yeah. i mean you know in terms of per you know in terms of what most people would spend on on a on a family meal um I, i'm lo- i'm looking at a project to try and introduce something quite similar with quite a high vegetable content so you get like a little meal box but sort of simpler simpler dishes and and lower a lower sale price which is going to be affordable for more people um and i think that's pro- i think those things might represent a, a good part of the future you know those these sort of approaches to to home cooking because you know um for, for some people i think they, they they certainly engage them in the right way they produce sort of reasonably healthy dishes out of them and like you said they they sort of learn new culinary skills and, and broaden their repertoire of dishes um so yeah i think those those have a real real um real sort of future 
um and and could be could be you know one one way where you start to address these problems because that sort of fundamentally uh, that sort of business model fundamentally um, un- unpacks some of our our assumptions and, and values which which underlie our food system and so that's the sort of approach you need if you're going to change these big systemic problems yeah it's interesting because one of the things that those food companies do if you look at their marketing they fundamentally pitch kind of two major asps well probably three major things the first is way less food waste from the standpoint of what you end up throwing away. Uh, We decide, you know, we create a portion size for you that's reasonable for, uh, we feel is reasonable for a person or research to be reasonable for a person. Um, We, uh, we, you know, send you only what you need. Um, you can cook it yourself, but quite often it's not just cook it yourself, but you can cook it on in under an hour or you can cook it in under 30 minutes. There's quite often this marketing message of it's not going to take you an hour and a half. It's not going to take you two hours. It's, you know, if you can make chicken nuggets and fries in the oven, which takes half an hour, you can also do this kind of thing. Um, so there's obviously, they're obviously trying to address, even though the price point is still high, you can see it clearly trying to address a lot of the problems that food culture of cook all your meals has created, which is fundamentally there's a whole group of people that just don't have time. And uh, there's a food waste aspect to it as well. Um, So it's interesting to see that uh, part of the industry start to take off and try to address this problem in uh, a fundamentally di- trying to address the problem of convenience food in kind of a fundamentally different way. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, I will say I don't want to, don't want to, um, you know, sort of uh, give, give uh, a particular group set of companies too much praise. You know, until these things become affordable, then then they are just sort of um, rich people absolving their guilt. You know, and still until these are options that that, that everyone can enjoy um and make sense for everybody then then um you know we 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 probably shouldn't get get too excited and i'd say the same about sort of a about um you know lab grown meat as i say i'm sure it's going to be expensive always could be pretty expensive option which is really about more about guilt absolution that is about creating creating large-scale systemic change but there is something in these these sort of um, products and that sort of business model of giving people just what they need in order to produce a food produce food with no waste that that could um you know could address a lot of problems and i think it's something that we, we should be thinking quite hard about how we how we can make that a more sort of um more sort of universal and 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 powerful thing which which more people can enjoy that is an excellent point to make that we should never just stop at alleviating our own guilt the people who can afford to alleviate guilt we should never just stop there even though quite often it probably feels like the sensible place for us to stop we should keep going and actually address the wider problem <laughs> yeah and then yeah, and unfortunately with these sort of food system problems i talk about in this book the wider problems are global and they're huge you know what something that that someone very powerful that someone someone told me or or, or said to me is you know that there are in, in in the world right now there are probably a billion people who have quite a nice life and have lots of nice things and i you know uh, i'm sure that would include you know sort of me and it would include most of your listeners probably i, I don't know um but um you know there are another six billion people who want a life like ours and is is the wants and need of those people which is going to drive what happens to you know the environment and the global economy in the in the next 50 years you know and and we need to think about that and think about how we manage that because there's no there's no 
justification at all for us saying you know pulling up the drawbridge and saying no those six billion people shouldn't have a nice life and shouldn't have lots of nice things um you know th- th- there's no way we can do that we just have to kind of try and create a world where their needs and their expectations and their growth and their progress are are chart a more manageable path than ours has in in the past um 50 years yeah, there definitely is, I think, a habit in the developed world, I've used air quotes when I say that, of um, saying, don't make our mistakes, developing worlds. Uh, we're going to continue to live our way, but you shouldn't make our mistakes. You need to find a new way to do it. And that is definitely not the right approach to that problem and will not ultimately solve the problem because we are generating a lot of those pressures. Even if we don't see those pressures or feel the burden of them, a lot of those pressures flow from us. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, you know, sort of like like I said about animal feed in, in Brazil and, and that sort of thing. I mean, when I look out at my, um, you know, where, where I am now, which is rural lincolnshire um it's a nice bit of um nice bit of english countryside to look out on but uh, but actually sort of you know fundamentally it's it's it's, uh, you know in terms of biodiversity it's completely dead it's farmland and it's you know we we deforested it a long long time ago as we have deforested most of our land the uk is one of the least biodiverse um sort of countries in in the world and it has destroyed almost all of its uh, natural habitats you know and that was part of our development and that was part of our economic development and part of our societal development and and happened a long long time ago so really for me to then look at what's you know happening with deforestation in brazil and say no you need to preserve this biodiversity they can equally just look back at me and say well why you didn't you haven't and and actually what we're not doing in this country and we should be doing um is you know sort of returning a lot of our land to natural habitat we're continuing to to keep it for agriculture or we're just not putting in the investment um required because you know returning stuff areas of land especially in the uk um to uh natural habitat is not just a case of leaving it it has to be managed and it has you know it costs um and we're not doing that you know and so who are we to say to sort of countries around the world no stop deforesting that land because it's a, a valuable resource from the world we we've deforested our land such a long time ago that we've forgotten about it and um you know that's that that's yeah, it's, it's not just to do so. We must find a better way, better way to progress. Yeah, especially when really the conversation we're having is please give us more soy to feed our cows, but also don't <laughs> deforest more of your land while you're doing it. It's a fundamentally incompatible mm. exchange. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there's this idea as well that we, you know, we can eat UK produced beef because it's not deforesting the Amazon. And actually, most most of the Amazon is being deforested, uh, deforested to make way for for beef cattle. I mean, there's a lot going to soy, which goes to to feed, which mostly goes to pigs and pigs and chickens. Um, but you know, most of it is is being deforested in order to make way for cattle. You know, there's this idea that we eat beef in the UK, and UK grown beef is not deforesting. So we can eat as much as we want. I'm not saying we shouldn't produce beef in the UK. Um, I think there's actually the west of west of England, especially, is, is a pretty good place to be producing it if you're going to make it anywhere. Um, but the idea that we eat beef in UK beef in isolation and everyone else can you know has has to live with that is is ridiculous. You know, beef is a global commodity. So if we're driving consumption of beef and and, and everyone's eating huge amounts of beef because we don't feel guilty about what we're doing here you're driving consumption you know global consumption which drives deforestation and you know 
the idea that we can can be sort of isolationist about how we eat and just not think about the rest of the world is a ridiculous one. So in situations such as the one we find ourselves where there is a lot of complexity, there are no easy answers, and it is a big system. This is not something that any one person can make a choice about, consumer or otherwise, and make a measurable dent in this problem. So what's the takeaway for people that you want people to think about as they're making choices in the world, not necessarily just about food, but more broadly? What what can we do about this um, in terms of driving this problem and trying to solve it, knowing that it is so much bigger than any one person? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it, it's it's unusual writing this book because because it, I, at the heart of everything I re- have written in the past, pretty much is is we shouldn't make people feel guilty about how they eat. People people should just you know, not guilt has no place in food and diet. You know, it's just a horrendous thing and, and um, causes all sorts of problems. So I'm very keen that we don't start pushing this all back onto the consumers and saying, you know, don't eat, don't eat that, eat this. Or, you know, if you if you if you're you're consuming large amounts of beef, then you're a terrible person. And, you know, you're, you're destroying the planet. What were you thinking? I don't want that to happen at all. Um, I think actually, you know, we should be you know, I, I, do, I do think we should we should um for those of us that enjoy eating meat and animal produce, we should kind of enjoy it more and savor it more, but eat it far less. We should we should realize what a what, what a wonderful thing it is, um, and and try and sort of um, reduce our consumption uh, to 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 sensible, manageable levels. Um, and I don't want to hear anyone sort of saying why you know don't don't eat that way. You're 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 a terrible person because of the way you eat. Um, what I want to do is, is is kind of move to a world where we where food becomes more of a political issue and an important political issue. You know, the the way to create systemic change is to fundamentally change the system. The greatest power, or one of the greatest powers that individuals have within a democracy, is to vote for change and to demand of our political leaders that these sort of environmental issues and and issues of agriculture and sustainability and food systems that these are the important political points of which they have strongly voiced opinions and policies on and we vote for the people who we think are most progressive in that way and that's how you create sort of fundamental systemic change um the other way for individuals is to think about you know, for, for those people who are lucky enough to have money to invest or to have a pension fund to to ensure that that money is invested in an environmentally sustainable way that's an incredibly powerful way actually um to 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 create that sort of change and there are many many investment funds who are doing sort of fantastic work in in in, in creating sort of sustainable investments and, and and ones related to to better food systems so you know, ask the questions to people who are managing your money um if you're in a lucky enough position to 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 to, to do so, um, you know what they are doing about sustainability and how they are sort of investing in companies which are working to create a more sustainable food future. Um, those are the sort of changes that actually will end up sort of moving our system. It's not it, for, for years and years and years and years, and it's fundamentally a problem now with all 
you know, environmental decision making. It's all been pushed back to the consumer. It's all been made the consumer's fault. You know, it's, it's our fault for not insulating our loft. It's our fault for buying the wrong car. It's our fault for making this or that choice or turning the not turn the thermostat down you know all these things have been pushed back onto individuals um, and what that does is that absolves governments and it involves institutions and it absolves companies from blame we need to create a system where people in power are held to account for their environmental decision making because it's been too easy for them for a long time to push that back onto individuals so it's really about voting and it's about money and it's about any other way you have of influencing the system you know i work in food so i can influence the food system to a small extent in a tiny little part of it and get involved in work that i think is you know benefiting um benefiting the creation of more sustainable food systems and you know there will be people who who can influence the system in that way but mostly as i said it's voting and it's it's how your money's managed i wonder if that's thinking about it i wonder if that's one of the reasons why things like veganism vegetarianism um people who really uh, push meat very hard uh why that is such a contentious issue and is kind of pushed on a lot of people, like people kind of seek to convert people to their way of eating. I wonder if that's partly why, because we feel like maybe it's our only ability to seek or to make change is, is from a consumer point, right? Like maybe we can't impact the political system, but if I can get enough people to stop eating meat, maybe I could make a dent. So maybe that's in part an expression of that helplessness we feel sometimes in the face of these big systemic problems. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would say it's, you know, it's such a human human thing to you know, when when things are big and scary and they're out of control. Um, humans tend to perform, want to have rituals they can perform, which make them feel sort of safe and make them feel like they're doing something. And you know, want to convert other people. You know, this is you know, I, I talk about food and religion quite a lot because, but there are so many parallels. You know, it's it's performing rituals of sacrifice in order to absolve yourself from guilt. Um, and that's what we tend to sort of repeatedly do. And these sort of dietary exclusion diets or you know, particular extreme sort of dietary strategies are, are ways people have of doing that, of, of, of making them feel like they have something, have some control over something which feels fundamentally uncontrollable. It's a very, very human thing, um, but it creates an awful lot of sort of quite damaging sometimes false beliefs. Um, and I think we really underestimate the power that we have as individuals to influence politics and to influence the system. You know, it, it, that, that, that's the way we create change. It's not by those sort of um, tiny sort of uh, individual consumer strategies. It, it, it's about holding people in power to account. Anthony, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you about your book, and I really enjoyed reading the book. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And if you want to learn more about Anthony Warner, his books, or his blog, as usual, we have links to click in the show notes for this episode. That's all from us, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, 
Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 